Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 316 of the App Percussion Podcast, the reduced cast version today. We have some absences, but that's all right. So, hey, I don't get to make fun of Ben, but I can say, how's it going, Ksenia? Moi priete? Or priete? Is that how you say it? What? Priete? Moi, is it moi priete, my friend in Serbian? Oh, priete. Good job. How do you know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. I thought I was, for a second, I was so overwhelmed about the fact that now I'm the only person that <laughs> to handle all the like mockery. And I just, I just freaked out for a second and I couldn't hear what you said. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I know that's my second Serbian phrase. If I learn one a year, by the time I'm like a hundred, I'll know. <laughs> I'll be able to hold a small conversation. Um, <laughs> Many important ones. I'm, I'm well, how are you? Yeah, no, it's good. It's uh, finally, we're up into the 30s this week. So we've gotten nice and warm up here. And y'all have all gotten uh, some snow and ice and everything else. Mm, we did not get snow. We're, we're really south here in Corpus Christi, but we did uh, have school go remote for a day because people were worried that it might be too cold for us. So, you know, we're oh. precautions, really. Yeah, <laughs> you know, up there. Yeah. Um, well, hey, for today's history, uh, this episode is releasing on February 17th. So a couple of things happened. Um, since it's my turn to do history, you know, we're going to have a fake out and we're going to move on to something else. But actually on this date of the 17th, uh, Madame Butterfly premiered the Buccini. And it premiered in 1904, which always blows my mind because I, I always think about Puccini being so much, I don't know, he's in that characteristic of he's older. Or it's kind of like when I think of Beethoven in my head, I don't think of 1800s Europe I think of for whatever reason like Shakespearean like yeah. carts and wagons um, even though I know that's absolutely not what it was like but some other things did happen today uh, this is going to be an awful pivot into today's topic but in 1972 Pink Floyd premiered Dark Side of the Moon in London a full year before its release they were on a four-day long stand-in in London and one night they just put on the show they played their whole Dark Side of the Moon album then they didn't play it again, and they released it one year later. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I've never been a huge Pink Floyd fan, but um, I'm just, they're growing on me. So here's the bad transition. Speaking of things that are hurtling through space at unimaginable speeds, that's a Miss Lanka piece. Um, on this date, the 17th of 2006, uh, David Mislanka's Give Us This Day, his short symphony for wind ensemble was premiered. And uh, I've played that one. Definitely when I was in college. Yeah, I was, I was in college by the time it premiered. Uh, but Give Us This Day is a piece that gets played a ton, especially in Texas where y'all are. And it seems like every high school has to program it every eight years by law. But it's a very challenging piece. And I thought it'd be a good time to mention today some of Ms. Lanka's musical contribu uh, contributions to percussion because uh, he's done quite a lot. And I think some of his best stuff often uh, gets a little overlooked for us. Um, so he has 14 works total featuring percussion or percussion ensemble. Uh, he has his works that are featured soloist pieces such as Arcadia II, so the Concerto for Marimba and Percussion Ensemble. He's got his Concerto for Marimba and Band, a piece I didn't know about, his Concerto for Solo Percussionist and Wind Ensemble, where you have tam-tam chimes, four gongs that are unpitched, six drums, 
Tibetan singing bowls that are actually pitched to specific pitches, vibes, metal wind chimes, xylophone, and marimba. He's got a work called In Lonely Fields for solo percussion and chamber orchestra. He has several chamber works that I think they're all just, uh, sorry, he has two chamber works that I think are both just fantastic. Uh, the Alto Sax Songbook, which I've played several times. Um, it seems everywhere I go, the Alto Sax always wants to play some of those. And I think one of his best works, uh, a short version is called This is the World. And the full version is This is the World We Know, the world of air and breathing and sun and beating hearts. But it uses the, uh, Ben should be here for Bartok. It uses the two piano, two percussion setup. Uh, no timpani though. Um, and it's a pretty fantastic work. He's also got some percussion ensembles that I think we all probably know a lot of. Uh, Montana Music, uh, his epic one for us, Crown of Thorns and Honer. And then the piece I mentioned earlier, Hurtling Through Space at an Unimaginable Speed. He's got his steel band work that I don't think I've ever heard performed or recording of called Time Stream. It's quite a long piece. And then he has three solo marimba works, Variations on Lost Love, which is just a masterwork for the instrument, uh, My Lady White. And funny enough, another one that I think a lot of people don't hear very frequently called A Solemn Music that I think actually when Andy Eldridge was doing his DMA that was part of his commissioning um, to commission that piece. So, hey, look, Ms. Lanka, Eldridge, Marimba, tying into Brian West, we, we've hit all the, uh, the, all the checkpoints. But um, as far as Ms. Lanka's writing for percussion goes, I think he's one of the few composers that can write for marimba in a chorale style and it sounds appropriate. I think it's because he treats it more like church organ rather than SATB choir. And so he's got a lot of use of space and pacing and the music's never hurried and it never overstays its welcome at the same time. And then for his ensemble works, uh, I, I've always really liked them. There's a piece by Schwantner called Music of Amber that's a giant, massive multi-setup, and you play all sorts of stuff. You have to do split melodies on one hand on Glock, another on Vibes. And I feel like if Miss Lanka wrote for a similar setting of chamber ensemble, he would use less instruments, but still real quality writing. There's nothing that ever feels like I have to spend two hours setting up or anything that's too overused or instruments used so sparsely that they're almost unwarranted. And a few Miss Lanka-isms, I know we're Miss Lanka heavy, uh, I've been on his music kick for a little while now. He's really good at ending long phrases with these little melody snippets that kind of tug at the heartstrings a little bit. And one that I keep finding come up is A, he always seems to uh, incorporate some sort of of liturgical hymn or any sort of uh, hymn from the Christian religion. Uh, the most frequent one I find is O Sacred Head Now Wounded. The... Uh, without the swing at the end. And he always seems to, at these sparse moments, he's gotten really creative with modulations and harmony because he always likes to use this descending sixth followed by a, a second and then sequence down again. So you get a major sixth followed by a major second and then a minor sixth with a minor second. And it sits within the diatonic key because it's just do, re, me, fa, but it really lets them 
pivot to parallel or relative major or minor keys and secondary dominance without sounding uh, too abrupt. It makes it really smooth. He just always has these. And he ends on what would be the ray of, of minor, the T of do. And then, because he didn't really hit soul on the way down, he doesn't have a five relationship in either key, so he can pivot to extended harmonies really well. So I've always found, yeah, when he does his harmony, they move so smoothly, and it's it's really, really impressive. Before I geek out too much more on uh, Mr. Mislanka, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, uh, Brian West from TCU. Uh, Dr. Brian West is the professor of music and the coordinator of percussion at Texas Christian University. Under his direction, the percussion program at TCU has received international recognition. The TCU Percussion Orchestra won the 2015, 11, 08, and 05 PAS International Percussion Ensemble competitions. And the TCU Drumline won the 2012 and 06 PAS Marching Festivals. Uh, Dr. West has conducted and performed in Hawaii, Italy, Spain, England, France, Australia, and Taiwan. Within the PAS, uh, Percussive Arts Society, of course, he currently serves on the Board of Advisors and is the Chair of Percussion Ensemble Committee. Dr. West is an active performer, clinician, composer, arranger, and adjudicator for a variety of percussive events. He is the executive producer on four CDs. Awesome. Published by Drop6 Media and works as a clinician and endorser of IP, Yamaha, Remo, Marimba One, and Sabian. And I think I have never seen more Marimba Ones in one university than when I see TCU play somewhere. So please, uh, yeah, welcome, Dr. Brian West. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, yeah. Th thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I really wanted to do an episode kind of focus just a little bit on on the percussion orchestra because I, I feel like that's for me is one of the coolest ensembles we have of course you know all the chamber pieces are always fantastic and you know you know solos duo trios are great too but I've always had this little bit of bittersweet relationship with when I play marimba it's uh sometimes I go up and I play and I mean I love it I love I love doing it but sometimes I really want to hear like big romantic Rachmaninoff piano chord. And then I throw my four mallets in and it's like, this is good, but I, I want that sonic punch of that piano. And sometimes I want that too with a percussion ensemble. And the percussion orchestra is one uh, ensemble I like to write for and I love to listen to that, you know, when it's there and you have, you know, 12 plus people on stage and there's multiple layers from, uh, low voices to high plus percussion it's just got this sonic presence that just really uh, feels very rock and roll and really really hits you and um, yeah I just love it it's my favorite by far my favorite sound to hear um, well let's uh, jump on in so uh, just to kind of kick us off uh, for anyone that may not know um, and I think this gets a little muddy when we describe it uh, as someone that has a lot of experience with percussion ensemble and percussion orchestra, can you kind of tell us the difference between, you know, what is the percussion orchestra and what is, say, percussion ensemble or just a larger percussion ensemble piece? Well, that's a great question. And um, one I've talked about a lot with some people and uh, you get different answers. 
And so it seems like it's a, you know, maybe evolving a little bit, or it sort of depends on your opinion. Um, you know, most people uh, still use the percussion ensemble sort of heading. Um, you know, I know our computer still says that for the class that's been on there for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And uh, a lot of people still use that as the, the title or the title of the genre. Um, and so a lot of people think of percussion orchestra maybe being just sort of a subset of the percussion ensemble. Um, so, you know, an ensemble being a group of musicians and obviously a percussion ensemble a group of percussionists. Um, you know, you, you can have a group of any kind of percussionists, right? Uh, when we get into world music, we could be here for hours and hours, but uh, just any sort of uh, title you want to use from anywhere around the globe, any sort of world music, or even, uh, you know, most people call them drum lines, but marching percussion ensembles or uh, just any group of percussionists. So um, within what we think of as, you know, concert percussion ensemble, uh, typically the main difference if you're using a percussion orchestra sort of, um, you know, delineation is really, uh, it comes down to a handful of things in my opinion. Um, size of group is one thing. Usually percussion orchestra is a little larger, but, you know, as we'll do probably for the next few minutes, we'll have lots of qualifiers. Uh, there are larger groups that, um, you know, have maybe as many players or more, but maybe we wouldn't call them percussion orchestra. Um, and we can get back to that in just a minute, but usually it's a larger group. Uh, whereas, you know, a distinction between percussion ensemble might be it's smaller, uh, you know, dealing with quartets and trios and quintets. Uh, maybe the music is unconducted. Uh, so what we think of more is chamber music playing uh, when it's percussion ensemble, percussion orchestra, maybe larger, maybe conducted. Uh, usually focusing heavily on the keyboard percussion instruments, um, you know, very tonal music, you know, making melodies and harmonies. Of course, we can have all sorts of other percussion instruments as well added in there, but those are some of the main differences that I usually start with uh, with the discussion. And I think you mentioned a number earlier, you know, um, some somewhere around that 12 number seems really common. Um, there's definitely not a number. Uh, and I've had times before when there's a piece or two where we'd say, you know, where does this fall? Uh, but um, anyway, I'll pause for a minute and I can keep going with some additional thoughts if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Um, no, it's no worries. Um, yeah, I've always kind of felt the same too. It's like there's some pieces like, um, say, you know, I feel like Crown of Thorns would be one that falls into the percussion orchestra realm. But then sometimes we'll play like some of Blake Tyson's bigger pieces for, you know, mostly keyboard um, ensemble and then you know it's the same setup but sometimes I we kind of toss back and forth and I, th I think you kind of hit it on the nail on the head when you were talking about the conductor versus chamber music skills but uh, Ksenia do you have something? Yeah I was just gonna say you know I'm trying to draw a parallel for example between some sort of string chamber ensemble and the string orchestra and I think once we run out of words like there's octet, there's nonet, but then I don't think we have like quite a dectet and like a dozenet or, or whatever the version of that would be. So I think once we run out of words to name the ensemble and obviously it's not conducted, I would say, if I could ever say, have a say, I'll say, I'll, I vote after nonet, we are probably a percussion orchestra. I'm gonna use that from now on, by the way, I'm just gonna quote that and move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like it's it's one of those things you put two percussionists in a room and you don't ask what's the difference and then you don't ask what's the first percussion ensemble. Because, yeah, you think Facebook political battles go back and forth. Yeah, try try saying, convincing someone that thinks ionization is first, that the rhythmica is first, and yeah, you'll be at it for hours. Um, <laughs> so I know uh, you mentioned there's not exactly a standard all the time, but do you think there's any sort of standard instrumentations or treatment of instruments that are associated with percussion ensemble? Kind of like how the Eastman Wind Ensemble, you know, when that was designed, that was literally, it's a wind band that has one on a part playing. And now we, we've kind of gotten to where we, you know, a, group, a school might have a wind ensemble, but it's really a like a wind orchestra or a wind symphony or a symphonic band, just with a, a fancier title. Yeah, I think that's something very good too to talk about because, uh, you know, standard, you know, I, I think again, focusing on the keyboard percussion is something that makes it really, you know, lean towards the percussion orchestra. Uh, obviously for us heavy uh, in the marimba area, uh, very common setup or, you know, four marimbas and then vibraphones and metal sounds. So usually four marimbas and two vibes is very common. And then we just keep on going with um, whether we want to add a glockenspiel or a xylophone or two or some crotales or some chimes, and then we get into, uh, you know, timpani and then all the other percussion instruments we could add. Um, so it seems like starting with that core keyboard uh, center is what makes it really lean towards, um, you know, more percussion orchestra. And one of the thought I'd like to sort of back up on, and I'd like to mention, um, you know, where I first heard the title percussion orchestras when I was, uh, I was a student of Richard Gibson's uh, I did my doctorate with him at OU, and Richard Gibson, of course, is the one that really started uh, bringing this, you know, genre or this subset of percussion ensemble to the forefront with all of his work, and we could probably talk about that for a couple hours if you'd like, um, but I was a student of his, and around 2000, he took his percussion ensemble to New York City to play a concert, and I thought it was fascinating. He started using the, the term percussion orchestra as opposed to percussion ensemble, uh, and he told me, it's like, we didn't do anything really different. We've been doing this for a while. I thought it was very interesting. He was trying to communicate something, not so much to the percussion community, but to the non-percussion community or even the non-musician. He said, we're going to New York City where maybe some people will come or some critics might come and they're not used to what we do. And if they hear the term percussion ensemble, they have something in their mind. They're probably thinking small chamber music quartets, maybe a lot of rhythmic, unpitched, you know, percussive sounds, but not what we were doing at OU at the time. So I thought that was very interesting that really what um, part of the reason for the term was again, just to try to communicate something a little different that people hadn't seen or heard before. And especially to those, you know, maybe outside of percussion. And uh, so I thought that was a, a real neat store to sort of uh, cement uh, the, this idea of the percussion orchestra and that title. Well, wow, that's literally branding. It was a, an intentional way of, of trying to make people see it as, yeah, because orchestra probably does sound sort of subliminally, well, especially to people who do not know music, more serious than ensemble. And, yeah, oh, that's definitely. Interesting. Well, good job that he, he was onto something, definitely. Smart man. Yeah. Um, and I guess for those that don't know, um, is uh, Richard Gibson still the dean over at TCU? Yes, he is. He's the uh, Dean of the College of Fine Arts and Professor of Percussion and uh, 
wish he was a little less dean, a little more professor of percussion, but we, we, we let him do his administrative thing. Uh, but we, we get him out of the office now and then, and uh, we're just very fortunate to have him here. He's been on a faculty for quite some time. Yeah, that, that's so cool that y'all ended up together, especially both being uh, interested in the percussion orchestra. Um, speaking of uh, Richard Gibson's work, uh, there's, I, I will full disclosure, I stole all of this from a Dr. Wesley Parker, who has a really nice degree from Florida State University. His DMA is over the history and development of percussion orchestra, but he summed up kind of um, Richard Gibson and the early OU and OU uh, percussion press into a nice little two paragraph thing where he says, um, in an effort to expand the repertoire for this larger percussion ensemble, a repertoire which was nearly non-existent with the exception of some transcriptions from groups like Musser's Marimba Orchestra or Dick Shorey's Percussion Pops Orchestra, Gibson envisioned what he would later be identified as the OU Percussion Ensemble Commissioning Series. And it was through this commissioning series that Gibson and the Percussion Ensemble at the University of Oklahoma gained international notoriety, vaulting the program to elite status for percussion performance and education. These advancements in percussion orchestra performance, commissions, and publishing at the University of Oklahoma under Gibson played a vital role in producing the significant interest in growing repertoire for this style today. And he goes on to say, uh, in the early days of the uh, percussion orchestra at OU, he said that uh, very few publishers were interested in the works for percussion orchestra. It was a unique style and sound, so unique that initially there was very little demand for it anywhere else. And this capacity was much like uh, the International Musser Symphony Orchestra, which was revolutionary for its time, but with no proof of real sustainability or profit um, as a publisher. Music publishers believe there's not enough organizations or teachers interested in the style and saw little chance for profit. Facing this issue, Gibson secured a grant to establish his own nonprofit university publishing company through the school. This project established the OU Percussion Press made possible with seed money research grant from the OU Associates through the University of Oklahoma Research Council. So that's pretty cool. That's kind of, Cassinia uh, mentioned branding. I feel like there's so many, even non-music companies that said, well, if you're not going to believe in me, well, to hell with y'all, I'll go, I'll go do it myself. <laughs> I'll go get my own grant. I'll start my own publishing company. Um, and I'm glad he did because it definitely worked out. Um, and some significant works um, from the OU Percussion Press, there are a lot, but three uh, pretty big ones that I think we all probably know. Um, Diabolic Variations in 84, uh, the Raymond Hebel, uh, Crown of Thorns, the Mislanka in 82, and then Palace of Nine Perfections in 97, the Awazen. Amazing works uh, on that list, and I'm glad you referenced that uh, Wesley Parker dissertation. That's a a very good uh, history, you know, if anyone wants to dig a little deeper, get some background on percussion, ensemble percussion orchestra and the connections and a great interview with Dr. Gibson there too. Yeah, he has an interview with uh, Dr. Gibson, yourself, uh, John Parks, um, a few other people, I think, as well. Um, it's a long dissertation. It is not a, it is not a light read, but it is very concise for what it is. It really just goes step by step. It starts with pretty much future, uh, futurism and the Russolo art of noise, and then goes up to basically 2010. Um, 
so yeah, if you are in need of a little bit of a history uptick, that's where you should go. <laughs> so speaking of yourself and TCU, uh, can you speak a little to how you got the TCU percussion orchestra started and where that initial interest came from? Sure, I'd love to. And uh, also love to, I don't mean to keep backing up on you, no, but uh, please, please do. when you were mentioning the, uh, you know, the, the OU uh, commissioning series, and uh, Dr. Gibson also tells a wonderful story about trying to get interest with these uh, composers and how he talked, I should know the number of years after how many times I've heard the story, but I can't remember, but he talked to Maslanka for a long time, trying to get him interested in writing for percussion. And, you know, he got, oh yeah, or sure. Or, you know, he kept, he kept getting pushed off and pushed off. But then I believe, uh, I believe I'm right in saying that Maslanka actually heard OU play diabolic variations. And it may have been at PASIC 85 or something like that, um, but actually heard it live and then went, oh, this is what they can do. You know, he had just never heard that it, it could be done. You know, um, he had, I don't know the exact dates on a lot of the pieces you were talking earlier about, but I thought that was so interesting that he actually heard Raymond Hubble's work and heard OU play it. And that, you know, sort of started and then Crown of Thorns came very soon after that, uh, one of our staples. So That's um, awesome. yeah, it's a, it's a great connection. Um, as far as TCU goes, um, or, or my interest, I think you said something about my interest. Um, I, I grew up in Alabama and went to a, a high school that had a really good band director and a good band program, but we didn't have uh, percussion specialists. There was no percussion ensemble, um, nothing like a lot of the schools around uh, here in Texas where I teach. So my first real exposure to percussion ensemble was at a summer camp. Um, I went to Suwanee, the Suwanee Summer Music Camp. At that time, Frank Schaefer was the percussionist there teaching and uh, I played in a percussion ensemble. That was the first time I ever had any idea that that was a thing, you know, and played a Mitchell Peters thing and uh, did it and moved on. Um, but then I had some exposure in drum corps to what, you know, percussion could be and, you know, on a different different scale, but was still so young. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I was just trying to you know, learn how to play. Um, but through my exposure at, in school, I went to University of North Texas and uh, Dr. Rock, Robert Chitroma and all the percussion programs there. And uh, I was trying to remember, but one of the first pieces I played as an undergraduate um, at North Texas was actually the, uh, the Steinhort, Two Movements for Mallets Two, which Richard Gibson is, is a commission of his a few years earlier. So it's great to sort of tie all this together. But through my work at North Texas, and then I did my master's degree with Gary Olmsted at IUP, who was a very big proponent of the percussion ensemble. He didn't use the title percussion orchestra, but he was a student of Elizabeth Green's and he believed heavily in conducting and conducted percussion ensemble was, was the forte there. He was at IUP for over 30 years and just an amazing percussion ensemble program there. And we played stained glass and, and past midnight had just come out by Tom Geiger and all these things. And uh, so those were sort of my early years. And then later on when I was working uh, in commerce. Uh, we all have a connection to commerce. Usually most conversations do. And uh, I, you know, did my, started working part-time on my doctorate uh, with the, you know, Richard Gibson up at OU. And so anyway, my interest sort of started there, you know, in my schooling. Um, but as far as TCU goes, uh, when I first got this job, there had not been a, a full-time percussion professor. It was an adjunct position. So there was a small department. Um, you know, there was like one returning student that year and a few newbies coming in. So there was uh, not many bodies to choose from, uh, but we, you know, we talked to the folks in the, in the drum line and some, uh, 
we had some double reed players, some woodwind players, and a piano player. We managed to pull a, a couple of larger uh, percussion ensembles, sort of percussion orchestra pieces together. But as the program grew, um, you know, we just finally got the bodies to be able to sustain it and then uh, sort of been going on ever since. So uh, I think that was the question about how I got started at TCU. Is that right? Yeah, no, no, it's all great. Um, you mentioned at one moment that uh, one of your professors thought that conducting was really important. And I also ask this from my own perspective of growing up in, in Europe where um, I had not heard of Maslanka or anything close to this kind of percussion ensemble or orchestra simply because we were very small. We didn't have, you know, any space. So everything was very small chamber music that, of course, you know, you don't conduct a duo. Um, and then I came to the US uh, for my master's degree and I remember thinking like, what is this wealth of percussion? And then I saw my professor stand in front and start conducting and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> Since when, like, how, how does this work? So from your point of view, what is the value of um, doing this conducted versus what if you had your percussion orchestra, say 12, 15 people not do this? conducted what what's the purpose there artistically great conversation and um i think it's real similar if we're talking about wind players or string players you know there's so much benefit to a string players playing in a you know quartet or something learning how to communicate with each other uh you know visually and learn how to you know get through a piece of music that way and i think it's also great for string players or wind players to learn in a conducted ensemble where um you know, we are literally all, you know, a larger group of people, larger forces and working under the baton and following uh, a conductor. And, um, you know, it's, it's a conversation I've had with lots of people over the years and some uh, former students. And, you know, that you, there's some pieces that we could train our percussionists to do unconducted, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, there's such benefits to being able, just like a wind player, or string player, to be able to follow a conductor and to not have everything so pre uh, prescribed that you know we know exactly what's going to happen when um you know we, we we try not to throw any giant curveballs in the performances and move move uh you know move move tempo 20 or 30 beats that they're not used to but at the same time just being able to let you know the music be the music uh, in the moment and follow a conductor um and for a percussionist you know we we work following conductor in band and orchestra and other settings but it's different if we're playing again, you know, this gets into the, the long, large, amazing conversation I love to have about one of the many things that's just so great about percussion ensemble or percussion orchestra is the ability for our students or our percussion musicians to get some experience playing these other instruments in a far different way. You know, if, if they're the main melody or the only melody or the only thing going on and they're not playing just in a, comp a complemental role, um, you know, it's way different in, in a percussion ensemble. And if I'm doing that and having to follow a conductor, I think it's uh, it's just building a different skill set. You know, at TCU, um, I think people think all we do is percussion orchestra, but we actually do tons of small chamber pieces and playing as well, and tons of percussion ensemble pieces. And our students get experience in large and small and medium and all different shapes and sizes, because I think there's a big benefit to playing unconducted quartets and quintets and then playing in a large ensemble and learning how to follow a conductor. Absolutely. My first big piece I wrote, or large percussion orchestra I wrote, Dreadnought has, I've seen it conducted and I've seen it played unconducted. 
And um, yeah, you, you mentioned the predetermined thing and they, it sounds great, the kids play fine or students play fine, but there is something different about, all right, somebody's in charge with the wand up front that, yeah, maybe we're gonna pump a little more energy in on this phrase, or maybe we're gonna go a little bit longer on this crescendo or fermata or things like that. And um, yeah. It kind of gets in, I mean, I know there's a lot of overlap with the marching idiom, you know, to percussion orchestra. Feels like we kind of went through the, the 80s where we had the crown of thorns and the diabolic variation style. And then as front ensemble and indoor WGI started getting nodier, now we have these students and arrangers writing these almost indoor shows for percussion orchestra setups. And I mean, I've, I've licensed a few of my pieces to, hey, we wanna arrange this for indoor. It's like, great, go, go ahead. Um, just cause it fits that, that model so well. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really cool that, you know, there's those pieces. Yeah, you wanna play your, you know, your chamber works that are more intimate and require a different skill set. But yeah, those, you know, those students that have those indoor chops, it's really cool to have you know, a piece that we can, hey, let's work on that orchestral musicianship. And also let's show off a little bit of that, what you were doing over that winter break or summer holiday outside or inside. Hey, a general question, just because um, TCU's done some commissioning as well. Um, when commissioning works or working with non-percussionist composers, do you find there to be any additional challenges that arise in there? I'm kind of thinking about how Ms. Lanka and Awazin are very lyrical in their percussion settings and their writings. And then like the newest work, I think the newest one y'all have commissioned, White Feather, the Sothis, um, that is a tremendous piece of, you know, sometimes you, you see a piece and it's like, I think a non-percussionist might've written this, but with like the Sothis, it's like, oh, that's how percussion should be written for. Um, but do you find any, was there any issues working with that piece or back and forth, anything like that? I think in my experience, um, you know, um, we're, first of all, I'm always trying to find people to write music. <laughs> I'm constantly looking for new composers uh, and trying to sniff them out anywhere I can. It's just, you know, one of the, the biggest things I do and enjoy doing. And, you know, the composer, uh, title to me, at least in my world, gets divided into two groups in my head, the percussionist composer and the non-percussionist composer. And so I think a lot of what we're doing, and we have a lot of pieces by amazing percussionists who sort of know the instruments and know what they can do. And uh, thank goodness we have them and some amazing works. And we love playing Dreadnought, by the way. Um, but also what we're trying to do is, you know, again, just expose this idiom to the non-percussionist, a composer that, you know, writes wonderful music, uh, can write a melody or harmony or just a beautiful piece of music, but maybe they just don't know our instruments, you know. Um, and I worked with a, a member of our faculty here, uh, Martin Blessinger, who's an outstanding uh, composer. And um, he had never written for percussion when he uh, came here, or at least extensive. And I said, hey, let's, let's get you writing some percussion, percussion orchestra stuff, you know, and he was like, uh, Caution light, caution light, you know. Um, but he did something I thought was so uh, wonderful and so smart. He spent time learning the instrument, you know. He's like, well, what, what can, what can be done on one of those things? Um, and so uh, he actually first, you know, 
he, he asked for a lot of scores, a lot of recordings and looked at a lot of music. And then he worked with a, one of our graduate students at the time and he wrote like a marimba solo and he would bring in parts for the student and the student would go, yeah, we can do this, but uh, you know, probable, possible, uh, you know, hard, not, you know. And uh, anyway, he just studied the instrument a lot and he got to know really what we can do at a, at a keyboard. Um, and then wrote this amazing percussion orchestra work uh, that's just outstanding, you know. And so um, I think that's what we're, we're getting into is, you know, trying to reach the non-percussion uh, community, the, the, that group of composers. And then, you know, sometimes they are amazing composers, but, you know, maybe they just don't know what can be done on our instruments. And so sometimes it doesn't sit well, et cetera. And, I remember you, you mentioned the ways and I had such a wonderful time working with him. What a, what a wonderful person, uh, just such an amazing musician and just amazing person. And we were very, very fortunate to have him on campus for about a week, uh, a few years back when he was writing the symphony percussion for us. And we talked about this all the time and he was like, well, I'm a pianist, you know, and um, I just sit at the piano and I just pretend I've only got four of them, you know, and then see what can be done. You know? <laughs> and it was just great conversation. Um, you know, just 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 a great person. And then you mentioned John Sophus, who was here. It feels like last year, but I guess it was before this thing we call the pandemic. So, right, it was pre-pandemic, right before the world uh, changed um, in the fall of 2019 when White Feather was coming out. And just another amazing uh, composer, but also person to work with. Uh, love working with John, and have just made such a good friend in him, and uh, love his music and. I think, I guess what I'm boiling it down to, I'm being kind of long-winded, uh, Caleb, but one of the things John wanted to do the most when I said, hey, will you write something for us? He didn't say yes or no. He said, let's have a conversation. And we got on a Zoom and we talked for like 45 minutes for the very first time after, hey, how's it going? And we, uh, we just started to get to know each other. And he really wanted to know what was in my head, what we were looking for. And, um, anyway, so there was just a lot of great communication back and forth. And so communication with a composer is just the greatest thing in the world. Um, and we've commissioned and premiered a lot of pieces here. And um, when it's a new composer, you know, you never know how they're going to take that communication. Because um, you never know if, if, I, if you ask a composer, hey, you know, this thing right here, could we possibly, you know, adjust it just, you know, this way or that way? Some folks get, you know, they're not too excited to get that, uh, that, you know, conversation going. And some composers are like, sure, you know, what, whatever, let's talk about it. You know, what do you think? And uh, I'm not talking major changes. I'm talking little things or um, anyway, it, it, I've, I've sort of prepared our students, you know, they're used to it now. It's like, it takes a long time to prepare these works when you're premiering them because, you know, there's mistakes that happens, right? And then there's things that are a little weird or that you want to change or adjust, or you ask the composer, the first thing we always do is everybody get a pencil and write V1 at the top left. This is version one. And there's going to be about five of these and don't get them mixed up and put your notes on the new copy every time you get one. And anyway, so um, I guess that's the biggest thing. It's just communication with composers and then, you know, ensembles or conductors or whoever's premiering the work and good communication back and forth about, you know, what can be done on the instruments or what might make it a, a little better you know i think that that back and forth works so well to make the project uh, meaningful on both sides and make the music better in the end um i like what you what you said about uh having the back and forth um i, I know i do that more so when i'm working with this say like an indoor group 
there, there's always the back and forth because it's like, hey, you know, we need Tony's part a little, a little more uh, beefed up. You know, we need he's a good player. We need to get him a more, a little bit more. You know, hey, we need this kid's part watered down a little bit. It's a little overwritten, and um, or I'll be like, hey, this doesn't quite work, and things like that. But it seems like when I write concert pieces, people are less apt to to do that back and forth. Um, but I really, I mean, I really appreciate it. I think everyone does as long as they don't have too much of an ego in the way, because in the end, it's going to make the, the piece sound better and, and all that, all that jazz. I know there's several of my pieces that are out there that I wish I could go back and have a conversation with whoever played it first and have fixed just a few things that maybe we we need a little bit here or there. I think in the TCU version of Dreadnought, there's an added wind machine and big crescendo at the end. And when I heard it, I was like, yeah, that's supposed to be there. Like, I wish <laughs> I wish I would have written that originally. Um, but yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, so just kind of curious, you know, OU was pretty much the first school to champion percussion orchestra music, as we know. And now TCU has kind of, become this you know this twin uh massive proponent of the ensemble as well um of course OU is still doing lots of stuff with uh, I think Andrew Richardson is up there now um he's still playing you know big pieces and and doing the OU thing uh but do you see any direction that maybe percussion orchestra is going in or any where you would like to see it go like I know the Sothis work was you know, that writing was very different compared to some of the previous uh, styles that had been written for. Yeah, do, yeah. where do you want to kind of see the percussion orchestra go in the future? Oh, it's, it, it's great to, uh, to think that way and think about it because uh, um, I, I, think, I don't think I take enough time to stop and smell the roses along the way. It's just sort of been a whirlwind of working so hard to try to get more music that we can play and try to reach more people and reach more composers and um you know constantly you know continually looking back to and the, the history is so important from where we come and, and you know knowing the history trying to get our students to know that but where we're going in the future um you know i tell our students all the time that we're, we're still so young as a as a musical entity or a genre however you want to look at it it's like percussion ensemble percussion orchestra whichever titles you like um, you know, we're still in diapers, you know, we're just, we're just getting going. Um, you know, we, we've just barely, um, you know, feel like we're just, you know, just barely getting going. So I think there's a lot more, um, to come. What is it? I'm not really sure. What would I like? I just would like to see the continued growth of, of the genre, whether it's large or small or medium or both or all the above, I hope. I just think there's so much good for percussion students at all levels. Um, I mean, I'm not sure uh, what your experiences were growing up, but you know, growing up in, in sixth grade, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, uh, you know, middle school band, junior high band, and um, you know, not getting as many playing opportunities and a lot of students leaving. And, you know, we can just use it for, for so much education and so much motivation uh, for students. I just want more students to have the ability to, to play in percussion ensemble. Um, and if it's a marching one or a, this one or that one or, you know, gamelan or a steel band or whatever, but uh, I love all types of percussion ensemble and 
percussion orchestra specifically and percussion ensembles, you know, that we're talking about here today. Um, I just think, you know, the sky's the limit with how many people we can reach. And I just hope we reach more people, you know, um, that reach broader audiences can learn what we do. And, uh, you know, that, that's definitely happening, right? There's groups out there that are growing and, and doing wonderful things. But, um, you know, I have to uh, give a little shout out to PAS. Uh, the Percussive Arts Society is, is trying, you know, leaps and bounds, you know, to try to champion the percussion ensemble cause with wonderful concerts and other opportunities. Um, currently working on that percussion ensemble committee, you know, we're, we're sponsoring the International Percussion Ensemble Competition. And then a few years old now is this chamber, uh, concert chamber percussion ensemble competition, which is just another great way to have more percussion ensembles playing at PASIC each year. And, um, you know, what an outstanding opportunity for schools to come. And I love the fact that, you know, we have middle school students coming now, um, whether it's, uh, you know, with the International Percussion Ensemble Competition winners playing showcase concerts, getting those seventh and eighth grade students to go to PASIC. And, uh, you know, I think we all have that memory of what our first PASIC was like to walk around those halls or that exhibit hall or walk in and out of those clinics or concerts and just, you know, with your jaw on the ground the whole time being exposed, you know, um, getting more kids to PASIC. So PASIC is a wonderful uh, opportunity, PAS, what they're doing. Um, I've tried, you know, a few other things. I've done some outside of TCU or outside of academic percussion ensemble stuff. I did a summer tour for uh, five or six years and we went uh, abroad in some other places and tried to bring groups of percussionists together. Uh, very challenging to do, but we did large percussion, percussion orchestra, percussion ensemble works in several different countries. And that was a fun way. We also have a local um, arts organization here in Fort Worth, uh, Performing Arts Fort Worth that uh, works hard on arts advocacy and music specifically. And they work down um, at our Bass Hall, our big symphony center in downtown Fort Worth. And they have the children's concert series, you know, where they bus in all the young students uh, and they hear the symphony play or they hear this or that. Well, they've been kind enough to reach out to us and we've partnered with them and we've taken you know, full percussion show over to uh, to the Bass Hall with percussion orchestra, small chamber groups, steel bands, drum lines, and taking as many percussion instruments as we, as we can to uh, expose young students. You know, all the all the yellow school buses rolling in with hundreds and hundreds of students, and you do those shows like two or three times in a row, and that's just been very rewarding um, to see that you know sort of relationship with a local arts organization. Of course, we've talked a lot about commissioning and premiering. Uh, recording CDs or recording new pieces, whether they're physical CDs or streamed, uh, you know, just that's a whole other conversation we could have. And uh, one that is, is, I think, important to have archival copies. Of course, we do our best uh, to make some YouTube videos now and then, and it's very hard and it takes forever. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there better than I am at it. And uh, if you go back and look at the TCU Percussion YouTube if you scroll all the way back to the beginning, you'll notice there's Dr. West's camcorder in the back of the pace of call. And so the video is just like fuzz, you know, <laughs> really good audio, though, because we brought some good mics and a, 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 an audio engineer from down the hall, Brian Youngblood. He got good audio, but just terrible video quality. So we're constantly trying to make better videos and really just to get the music out there. You know, if, if that's where especially younger students are on YouTube, um, we're just trying to get more you know, recordings out there of, of, of great work. So uh, that's something. And then I guess one last thing to chat about under this heading is um, 
during the pandemic, I mean, this is something we started before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, especially that, what was that spring of 20, when we all locked down and went home, we'd started doing student composition projects uh, with all the students who were enrolled in our percussion ensemble class. We were sitting at home, we were trying to figure out how to you know, use Zoom. <laughs> it was terrible, uh, but what a great time it was. And uh, we've had students writing music here at TCU for a long time. We have a great relationship with our theory and composition faculty. And we've had students who, you know, major or minor in composition, and then a lot that just want to write and get experience writing. Um, students that were here starting their writing career, uh, whether it's Dave Hall or Francisco Perez or Jacob Remington or some of these students that were, we were just trying to nudge along. Why don't you write something? And now they're doing just amazing stuff, you know. But now we're doing it as part of the class uh, since the pandemic. We actually have it in the syllabus. And so everyone in our percussion ensemble courses writes music. And that might be just arranging something super easy, or even composing a little bitty short snare drum, whatever. Doesn't matter what it is, but just start writing something, learn something about Sibelius or Finale, um, put pen to paper, so to speak, and just you know get going. And boy, we've had some really neat student um, you know compositions come out that we've uh, been able to prepare in the past couple of years. So just try to get the younger generation writing, 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 and uh, keep getting the word out. So that was kind of long-winded, but. No, but that's that's brilliant and i think uh it's so amazing that you've adopted that permanently into your syllabus um one of the things that i've uh, done this year which seems to be a blast and it's related to what you said you know about hey it's actually really tricky to do something on youtube or to produce something is that i've incorporated concert production into um the chamber uh concert so it's not only what I say needs to be played. It's like, okay, how are you going to put a concert together? And how are you going to find the audience? And let's figure out how you're going to make a poster. And let's figure out what you have to do on social media to advertise it. And let's figure out, like, you have to reverse engineer this thing with me. By when do you have to have everything prepared? Where are your mock performances? All these things. And I must say, the kids love it. I mean, they're so much more involved. And I've noticed the same whenever there was a student who had some uh inkling of of curiosity to write i always said sure whatever you want to arrange video game music do it whatever you want bring it to us we'll play it and i feel like they, they want this ownership so i think it's amazing that you now have everybody tried that out because maybe not everyone recognizes that they have this talent or curiosity but then you give them a chance and i mean then it turns into a hub of the composers that you're looking for which is awesome so i think this is a great note for every all educators out there like copy what Dr. West does there. It's good. Well, we even have, we had one last semester and there's one this semester, there's so many surprises. You know, I had a student bring something in and, you know, and it was like, this is really good. <laughs> like, we're going to put this on a concert. I mean, this is really good. You know, uh, there's a lot of we're learning. And then there's a lot of, wow, this is already a, a wonderful piece of music. And, uh, you know, the student, like you say, you just let them have some ownership. It's amazing what they'll do. Yeah. Yeah. We did funny enough at when I was at JMU with Casey, we did the same thing at lockdown. Everyone wrote a, a something over break, a solo. Um, they could do found instruments, they could do snare drum, they could do somebody did like a spoken voice and uh like a to the earth style setup and um it was really cool. But yeah, it's it's a good thing. Yeah, I like when more people write because it just, it might not be great, but it's going to be good. It's going to be something. 
Um, I, I feel like that's the biggest uh, hurdle at the beginning is like, okay, I got to, I'm at level five of 10 with my playing. And then you start writing and the first thing you write, it's like, all right, I'm not from square one, but I'm not at level five yet. My first written piece is like level two. And so it's a little, you know, it can be a little discouraging, but you know, you just, you do it once and then it's like, all right, that went okay. And then the next one you write, it's like, hey, this is pretty good. And then you do another and it's like, and you know, it's kind of like you mentioned uh, Jake Remington and, and Franco and Dave Hall. Um, and yeah, those are such three big composers for percussion now. Um, and I don't know their first pieces, but if I had to guess, I would imagine that their first piece or two probably aren't in circulation um, frequently throughout and, you know, as well as mine aren't. Um, I'm sure Casey's aren't as well. Um, yeah. That's the blessing of early works, you know. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're great foundation, but luckily they stay out of view for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it turns out that little drum set groove in the middle of the thing wasn't quite as cool as I thought it was. Um, things like that. Yeah, 151 isn't as interesting as I want it to be. Uh, well, you mentioned outreach to, to youth, especially. Um, I, th I think that's awesome. I think percussion does such a good job of it because it's so visual. You know, a string quartet is great, but, you know, even though they move, there's a, it's a different kind of motion, like percussion you see so much more. Uh, but can you speak a little bit about the upcoming TCU Percussion Festival that's happening? I saw you just had to add a whole nother round or, or category. Yeah, um, so uh, I'm uh, not getting a lot of sleep these days. No, uh, it, it's a lot of work, but we're just really excited about it. Um, it's um, so it's a it's a festival primarily for concert percussion ensembles, percussion orchestras, whichever title you like to use. Uh, it has morphed into some other things, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for, um, you know, marching ensembles, and it uh, doesn't seem like there's as many for concert ensembles, although many schools have solo ensemble competitions themselves. Uh, but like things that are independent from the ISD or the state system of UIL here in Texas, et cetera. So over in Dallas, um, uh, good friends over at Forney High School started a, a concert percussion ensemble festival quite some time ago, um, and it took off like a rocket, and now it fills every year, and it's just like oh, there's a waiting list forever. And so uh, an old student of mine, Matt Moore, started one over here on the Fort Worth side of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex right before the pandemic, and I think it ran a year or two, a couple years Um and it was, you know, it was getting going great. And then COVID and pandemic happened. And then I talked to Matt and he was like, yeah, we're not doing this again. <laughs> so how about it's your turn? Um, and anyway, it's something I'd often thought about doing at TCU, but we never had any facilities to, uh, to be able to make it happen. Uh, but we did just open a new building last year and we're thrilled to have it uh, for the first time. We, you know, had very, uh, very meager facilities that we were making do with before and no dedicated percussion space. And, um, you know, now we have a, a wonderful facility with a new concert hall that's opening up, still wasn't finished, but we opened the building last year. And so we have rehearsal space for band and orchestra and percussion and a, another concert space. And so we can actually entertain the idea. So we're starting a, a festival. I had no idea if anybody would come. I just sort of threw it out there and said, you know, um, 
want to come and some schools started registering. So uh, I think we're up to about 20 schools now and uh, middle schools and high schools, mainly high schools. And um, they're going to come play. And, you know, I, I got a lot of advice from um, some of my former students who are, you know, alums out teaching public schools. And uh, they've been super, super helpful. And a couple in particular were the ones going nudge, nudge, trying to get, get us to do it. And uh, so, you know, we've got a lot of feedback from them. We asked them and a lot of other uh, schools what they wanted, you know, this way or that way. How do we want to set it up? Uh, we gave the schools the option of if they wanted to compete or not. You know, some schools like to compete, some don't. That's another conversation there. But um, anyway, so we're going to have, uh, they'll get to play in our brand new Van Clavering concert hall. And then they'll have some time after the performance to uh, have some clinicians come up and speak to them uh, and give some input. They'll get some written comments and some video and audio, good audio recordings and stuff like that. And so we're just really excited to have that much percussion ensemble going on in one day. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we ran out of room uh, and had a, more people interested. So we said, okay, we opened up the second venue and um, we've got, it's filling up now. And then, like I said, we, we're also trying to, well, some of the feedback we got is we want percussion ensemble to be the main focus, you know, showing people percussion orchestras, percussion ensembles, but, you know, any education possible. So we're, we're doing clinics now during the day. We've, so it's sort of like a, you know, the PAS day of percussion model. We've got you know, four or five, six clinics going on during the day. We've got a room with solos. Students can come and play their marimba solo, their standard drum solo, whatever they're working on to get some more feedback uh, from a, you know, a professional. And then the, the ensemble. So uh, we're just really excited about it happening April 9th here at TCU. And uh, we'll uh, every day continue to make more progress on finalizing all the details. It's, it's been a ton of work and, and still is, but uh, we're just really excited to have that many people come together and champion, you know, percussion ensembles and percussion orchestra and, you know, playing drums is fun. So uh, we're, we're trying to bring people together and uh, we're just thrilled. We have lots of folks from Fort Worth, of course, and Dallas, Fort Worth, but we got a couple schools that are driving too. So it's real, just a super, uh, super thing that schools are coming from, you know, afar to try to come together and, and play music for each other. So that's awesome. Yeah, that sounds, man, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Me. Yeah, it's cool. Y'all have the new the new center as well. I totally forgot TCU got that new building. Um, yeah, y'all had y'all still have the PepsiCo Hall. Is that right? Yes, uh, we we still have uh, PepsiCo Recital Hall, Ed Landreth Hall. We have two other spaces as well. Uh, PepsiCo is very small; it seats like two or three hundred. And then we have this large auditorium, Ed Landreth Hall, which is like fifteen hundred, two thousand. It's cavernous it's so big so the new van clyburn hall is sort of right in the middle we found a sweet spot i think it's about 750 um and just an amazing acoustic uh, design and very unique large stage with a traditional seating space but also some minimal seating around the side and a choir loft so they'll actually be seating all the way around the stage um and we anticipate a lot of students might like to go behind the stage and watch percussion concerts and go what's going on down there you know so uh, we're That's really cool. excited about the new hall opening yeah we have the home of budweiser is st louis so i'm kind of hoping we can get like the anheuser bush um percussion wing or something going on but uh they they don't return my emails so we'll see <laughs> what no it's keep working man keep bed. working yeah 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 get all the students everybody take a picture with no of course they're not wait, wait. <laughs> um no that's cool it's funny you said uh, is Jim Gist still over in North uh, Forney area? 
Yes. Uh-huh. He was my Jim and Mario school. Luna. Yeah, Jim was my middle school percussion director through my first year of high school. That's right. You're from Paris. I forgot. From Paris, yeah. So North Lamar? North Lamar, oh. yeah. Uh, that's what I thought. That's funny. Very good. Yeah, yeah, Cassini, you gotta you gotta jump into the scene. Yeah, there's all these Texas people. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Paris? Paris? Paris, Paris oui. Texas. Yeah, we oui, Paris. <laughs> Paris. Um. Paris. Oh, mon ami, Paris. That's amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and there's an Eiffel Tower. There is an Eiffel Tower. It's got a cowboy hat on the top of it. No, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. I'll send thing. you a picture. It's uh, funny. <laughs> it lights up in colors at night and moves too. I I don't trust anything you're saying anymore. This is not. This is not a lie. This is actual. <laughs> this oh my is god. True. Yeah. <laughs> well, the things that I learned. What can I say? You know, I moved to Texas thinking that I'm gonna actually figure Texas out, but turns out Texas is three times the size of France. I mean, that shouldn't be considered a state. It's multiple countries on other continents. So like, how, how am I ever supposed to make it out there? It's too many hours of driving. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. too much, especially to Paris. I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny. I think we found out on one pre-podcast episode, the distance from Ben and Tarleton to Cassinia is just a little bit shorter than, this, than the distance from Ben to me in Missouri by just a few hours. So, yeah, yeah. yeah Texas is crazy. Amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, great. Well, hey, um, before we wrap, Cassini, do you have anything you wanted to add, or or Dr. West, if there's any extra um, things you wanted to plug? Well, well, happy to happy to hear it out, and um, yeah. But if not, no worry too. No, I just I just really want to thank you both and everyone at the podcast for not only having me on, but for, uh, for, for doing it. I was just scrolling back through the YouTube and looking at all the, the people you've talked with and listened to some conversations. And it, it's just, it's a great thing what you guys are doing, just kind of bring folks together and have awesome conversations uh, about all things percussion. It's just very cool. And thank you for thinking about, you know, percussion ensemble, percussion orchestra. And, um, you know, I, I think it's wonderful to just, you know, keep bringing it to uh, more people, you know, and that's what we're trying to do. So thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah, for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for everything that you do. It's, it's incredible and good luck with the festival. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it'll be something, but it's going to get easier. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And it's still going to be worth it that that, you know, last day when you go home in the evening, you're going to know that you've connected hundreds of people, which is just that's really, really special. So thank you for doing that, especially for the young ones. It's amazing. Thank you. And so we're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is awesome. I remember some of my first Jim Gist took us on a trip similar to play at some colleges. And that was just still those moments stick out out of my whole high school experience as being like, that's kind of what got me to get a little serious about it because that was, yeah, that was a great experience. So I'm sure it'll be the same for some of those students that uh, come to the festival. It'll be awesome. Well, we certainly hope so. We want to keep them motivated and excited and keep them playing, you know? Definitely. Well, all right, everybody else, we will catch you next time on episode 317. See ya. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.